Now, clean energy three years ago or during the Obama years was like a curse word around Republicans. Now, all Republicans are talking about clean energy. They're not quite ready to talk to you about climate, but you know, we see ads. Republicans talk about solar panels, uh, wind, um, you know, jobs in their districts. Texas is, of course, the biggest producer of clean energy in the country. And so people want to talk about it. I don't think it's fully coincidental that Republicans have started talking about this a great deal and also for the first time ever the clean energy industry has funded them more than they funded Democrats. And I would like to think that if we saw some of that disparity in climate funding, you might also incidentally start to see that conversation change a little bit. Yeah, the green wave is just about policies. That's green as in money. <laughs> the green, green Dollars. wave. We've heard a lot about the potential for a blue wave in this year's midterms, but what about a green one? We're talking all things climate and energy in the 2018 midterm election in this special episode of Political Climate, recorded live at Yale University. <laughs> Thanks so much to the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication for inviting us. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media, and we have our Republican Shane Skelton, partner S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, and our Democrat Brandon Hurlbutt, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. As we record this, we are just over a week from the midterm election, and we can't look away. Every election is called the most important election, but this might possibly be the most important one, just because. The country is so divided and there are so many issues that are really being brought to the fore this year. So how are energy and climate playing in? In this show, we'll dissect some ad campaigns, talk about tight races, discuss some key ballot initiatives, all related to energy and climate issues. Plus, we'll take a listener question that we received before the show, and we'll hear a few of Brandon and Shane's midterm predictions. You guys already have a bet going on Beto versus Cruz. That's been a big toss-up so far. We're going to maybe see if we can get some more friendly wagers going. Are you guys uh, ready for that? Of course, though Beto and Cruz is not really a toss-up anymore, oh, is it? Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but well, this that's... is it. I mean, we are, this is exciting. We are about a week away. I mean, we're finally here. This is the pre-election episode. It is sort of a trip because we, just so all of you know, we spend a lot of time in Washington, not just that we formerly worked on the Hill or in the administration, but our companies both do this day to day. So whether that's helping with campaigns, raising money for candidates that we like, um, you know, talking to administration and Capitol Hill staff and trying to get stuff done. So it is very real. And a lot of the time it's theory. And then once every two years, you have this payoff where you're either going to continue on you know, your trajectory or there's going to be an entire overhaul of government. And it's kind of surreal that we're one week away from that now. Or entire overhaul of your podcast friend group. We'll see how this plays right. out <laughs> and the emotions afterward. Um, so back to climate and energy and how they play in. We've seen hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and high temperatures, and yet climate change continues to rank low among voter priorities, trailing health care, jobs, and immigration. No surprise, few candidates make this a campaign issue. But the politics around climate change might be changing. Yale's own Anthony Laserwitz, director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, recently told the New York Times, at the national level, it's very clear it's not going to be the issue that brings people to the polls. But it's an issue that is at least being talked about in some races, and that is new. So we're going to talk about some of those races and see if this really signals whether or not a green wave is happening. So let's look at a few ads. We're going to go to a few videos here. And just a note that this is not an endorsement of any of these candidates, but we thought they're really symbolic of uh, how these issues are playing out this year. Here we go. 
This facility is on the leading edge of clean energy, but Donald Trump doesn't think we need it because he thinks climate change is a hoax. I'm Sean Caston. I'm a scientist and a clean energy entrepreneur who helped companies reduce CO2 emissions. I'm running for Congress because it's more than just climate change. Donald Trump is gutting healthcare, dismantling Social Security and Medicare, attacking women. I'm Sean Caston, and I approve this message because we have to beat Congressman Roscom and stop Donald Trump. So that was Sean Caston. Um, he is a Democrat running Illinois' 6th Congressional District. He's a scientist, clean energy entrepreneur, and I picked this one because he is one of the few candidates on either side of the aisle that actually talks about climate change dead on. Even some of the Democrats will kind of tiptoe around at the talk about clean energy, but I thought it was interesting that he went that route. So, Brandon, why do you think he as a Democrat you know, took that tact? Well, I think it's really interesting. I know this district very well. I grew up in Chicago, home of the first place, Chicago Bears, um, and I ran a campaign um, in a district, you know, uh, basically in that territory. So uh, a little bit about that district. When you think of your traditional suburban, like, swing voter, they live in this district. So one thing I don't think that will be changing anytime in, you know, in the near future is, you know, the cities, urban areas are very democratic. Rural areas are very Republican. So to the extent that the swing voters and persuadable voters still exist, they are living in this district. You know, it's just, it's suburban. When you think of like, you know, families, couple kids. So these voters, if, if climate is resonating in this district, that means that it will be a, you know, a harbinger of things to come. Um, so uh, this is a key race. We flagged it early in our podcast and we will see um, if Sean Kasson can win on this message, uh, this is gonna be a big deal for climate. We should know that it's a really, it's a really close race. Kasson seems to be up, according to some of the latest polls, by about five points, but it's tight. Yeah, I think um, he's an interesting candidate in that it is really difficult for candidates to talk about climate change. Even people who care deeply about it, it's typically not their number one voting issue. They're more focused on you know either other social issues or economic issues or you know pocketbook issues. And so when someone comes out talking about CO2 and you're trying to figure out how to pay your bills, um, it, it isn't driving you to the polls. He's interesting because he made money as a clean energy entrepreneur. So he sort of has the high ground to talk about not just what's going on with the climate, but he can also discuss the economic opportunity. And in fact, he's done so well that he's now going to run for Congress. Uh, as Brandon said in this district, this is where I think I would part with Brandon and, and probably, honestly, most people here in that I think that these districts are tricky because in one way they're swing districts. And so it's easy to say if they go from Republican to Democrat, you can shift majorities and you might have a more viable chance at climate action or clean energy policy or whatever it is you want to do. But the reality of it is, there's one Carlos Carbello, and there probably will only be one. So there's, there are very few Republicans who are out there you know, planting their flag on the climate change issue. If you want to bring Republicans around to this issue, and I think we, we will need to, I and mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but we had the Obama White House, the Democratic Senate, the Democratic House, and they weren't able to move the needle. It's really tough to move large policies like this when you don't have bipartisan buy-in. If all these centrist districts, if all these moderate districts go from Republican to Democrat, there's nobody left to work with. I mean, you have Carbello, okay, so you get one vote. But if everyone that's in a moderate district that would tolerate a Republican who will vote on clean energy policy, who will vote on climate policy, who will talk about this stuff publicly, and you knock them out, there's no one left to work with. And so I think it's, uh, you know, I view it a little bit differently, but I think it's, it's going to be tricky to watch these suburban areas because these are the moderate Republican districts. Otherwise, you're going to be left with uh, Democrats and then, you know, rural, more conservative Republicans that are not 
going to want to play ball on these issues at all. Just to reemphasize Julia's point, there's a lot of Democrats that will run on, you know, they're, they're friendly towards clean energy. He, he, the basis of his campaign is climate and clean energy. So this is going to be really key. That's, yeah, it'll be curious to watch how that how that lands. And, you know, Shane mentioned Carlos Corbello, a Republican in Florida, uh, Florida's 26th congressional district. And we're going to hear from him now. My first job was refereeing basketball. I call it a fair game. But Washington politicians don't play fair. And I just call them like I see them. The left blocked my dreamer solution. I called them out and kept working. The right didn't do enough for our environment or school safety. So I called that one too. In Washington, many politicians play for their party, but I play for you. I'm Carlos Corbello. I approve this message. I'll always make the fair call. All right. <laughs> He went with the refereeing theme on that. I love watching the themes they go with. There's been some interesting ones. One guy had like a dumpster fire behind him. Like the interesting imagery they go for. Like, I love the imagination. Um, so what's interesting about Carlos Cobello, he introduced a carbon pricing plan this year in Congress, along with Ryan Fitzpatrick, another Republican. They're part of the Climate Solutions Caucus, Climate Solutions Caucus which you may have heard of. It's a bipartisan group uh, in Congress. It's being highly criticized because some of the members, specifically on the Republican side, have since voted against some environmental action. But Corbello has actually had a pretty good record on this. He introduced the legislation and has been speaking out on climate issues. As you saw in his ad, he mentions environmental issues. Note, though, that he says environmental and then points to a headline in the ad that says climate change. He doesn't actually say climate change himself, which I thought was a curious little thing. Um, but he's one one guy. And so to Shane's point of like, are we going to vote out these moderate Republicans? That's a fair point. But these moderate Republicans, not many of them are talking about climate change, save for Curbelo. So anyway, what do you guys make of this ad? Well, looking at the numbers, so Curbelo is in a district that Hillary won by, was it 22, 23? I mean, that she won by a tremendous amount. He's also in a district that will be one of the first in the US impacted by rising sea levels or any sort of climate related consequences. So there's not a lot of risk for him. Um, for him to talk about climate or environmentalism, that is a popular thing to do back home. He's not stepping out you know, and, and taking a risk. What I think is more interesting, Julia mentioned um, Ryan Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania. The question for me is not can a Republican in a Democratic district that's being impacted by climate change talk about climate change. The question is can a moderate Republican in the Rust Belt, in an area where jobs are created by manufacturers and other you know, high-emitting resources, uh, who is moderate, talk about a whole host of things, including but not limited to climate change, and stay in Congress long enough to be impactful. And you know, we talked about uh, the Sean Caston race against Keith Rothfuss a minute ago. Um, Fitzpatrick's another example. If Republicans in the Rust Belt, in the industrial Midwest, in areas that are more coal and natural gas fired than you know wind and solar powered, if they can't win, um, I'm just not sure how you ever get national policy. You might have states like California who go their own way, but I just don't see how you're ever gonna get the federal government to step up and pursue some sort of climate plan if every Republican who's willing to have that conversation is you know, pounded with tens of millions of dollars of advertisements telling you know, everyone around that if they want a good country, he needs to go. Uh, so I, I'm worried about it. I continue to be worried about it, but I actually think Fitzpatrick looks a lot better right now than he did a couple months ago, and so of course, personally, I'm hoping he'll hold on. I, I'm going to go ahead and guess that Brandon's going to disagree with that. Well, this is another race that we've been tracking, you know, for uh, several months. When I was on the Obama 08 campaign, 
Uh, I was a political director for Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and Pennsylvania. So followed you know, Pennsylvania politics closely. And Bucks County, which is where this race takes place, is similar. It's another one of these suburban districts. And Fitzpatrick is a guy, he is a moderate. He was one of the only Republicans to co-sponsor the carbon tax bill that Curbelo introduced. He is said things, you know, he's disagreed with Trump publicly, which is very hard for a Republican to do. And so what I think is interesting about this race is, is, is it will show our voters voting locally, because Fitzpatrick reflects the values of his district. He's in line with, with you know, the policy beliefs of his constituents. Or have these elections been nationalized where people are just going to come out because they're upset about Trump and they're going to vote this guy out? This race will be, it's an East Coast, you know, time zone. So when you're watching on election night, you want to see what's going to happen. This will be one of the first ones, you know, if, if, if this goes Democrat, you'll see it's going to be a big night for Democrats. And I just can't stress enough, as Brandon says that, and I think it's worth thinking about just for fun, is if you have Obama, who was the most climate friendly president we've ever had and 59 seats in the Senate and a strong majority in the House, and you couldn't pass cap-and-trade, which honestly was pretty benign. When you look at climate policy, cap-and-trade is not that intense of a climate policy. We're not going to see 59 senators from the same party for years. I think you would agree with that. So if you can't yeah, do it two then, Dakotas for some reason, and they get four senators. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we needed Constitution two Dakotas. Constitution hyper-interesting. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but honestly, I, I just tend to wonder, can you do this without Republican buy-in? And anyone who tells me that you can, I really want to see the path to that. And if you can't, then I don't know why you would target only those Republicans who stand up for the environment with a ton of environmental spending saying that they're you know, awful people and they need to be removed. So we didn't obviously see a, an ad from Fitzpatrick, but he's, I think, Pennsylvania's first district. So that's the one to watch. And I don't know how much he's been campaigning on climate, though. I think it's been interesting. He did take part in that bill, but I don't think he's been out front in the, in the election talking about that, it. That's my larger point. There yeah. aren't going to be 100 Carlos Carbellos that are going to join right. a climate bill. There have to be Fitzpatricks who can talk about other things, keep his job, and then also vote in favor of, of climate-friendly policy. Well, here's another person who's taking a very similar tact, but is not a Republican. Good work can be hard to find. Dan McCready made North Carolina leader in solar power, which created good jobs for people like me. Dan runs a tight ship to get results. No surprise, he was a Marine after all. Dan McCready helped create hundreds of jobs that can't be outsourced. He'll work to make Congress run like a responsible business, making payroll and balancing the budget. I trust Dan to work with Democrats and Republicans to make Congress work for North Carolina. I'm Dan McCready, and I approve this message. That sounded very much like a moderate Republican ad in a way, right? And talking about jobs and really emphasizing the non-climate related or environmental elements of clean energy. And for those listening, the entire ad starts with a big pan of the solar projects. And uh, Dan McCready actually is a small business owner, owns, I think, a solar company and has developed solar projects. So he has that business background. But note, he did not say climate change. And it's actually not even on his website. Some other Democrats have talked about the clean energy jobs piece, but say somewhere in their literature, you know, climate's a threat. But interestingly, McCready didn't do that. He is in a very red district. Um, he's actually running against uh, Republican Mark Harris, who rejects established climate science. So very different perspective there. So this points to me uh, to a difference in climate versus clean energy, and we debate this all the time. Do you have to say climate change or acknowledge that it's real to get real climate policy by another name? And a lot of people say you do have to say it out loud. You can't fix it if you can't say it. 
Others, you know, Shane would say, why? Just go for the, the policy fix. But anyway, Brandon, what do you make of, of Dan McCready's message there? Well, one point that I wanted to make is that, um, you know, nationally, people would, some pundits would say, well, climate's not really a part, it's not going to have a huge impact on these elections. That's, that's what we're here to talk about today. And we think there's a lot more going on. Uh, McCready's a good example of, like, on the fundraising, you know, and I've never met Dan McCready, but had a fundraiser for him in Washington, D.C. And we did that because of his positions on climate and clean energy and, you know, the horrible positions of his opponent. And so we did a fundraiser for him in D.C. We raised, for him and another congressional candidate running on clean energy, $50,000. That's real money for a congressional candidate, and that money came in from all over the country. We raised money from New York, D.C., people who have never maybe even been to North Carolina, but they were motivated by his message to give money. And so while climate may not be the top-line message in some campaigns, the climate and energy community is motivated to give money, and that's giving a cash advantage to many of these candidates for Congress. Dan McCready has a three-to-one cash advantage over his opponent. That allows him to open field offices, do digital ads, get his message out. And I think, so in that way, climate is still having an impact on these races. Yeah, I know we're going to talk about the money side of it, and I think that's actually a, an interesting conversation that people probably don't pay enough attention to. But another thing about this race that stands out to me, and I think it's problematic for all issues, but climate being the one we're talking about today, is this is a Republican incumbent who was beat in his primary. So this is now basically an open seat. There's a Republican primary, or there's a Republican uh, general election candidate, there's a Democrat general election candidate. That should never happen. And so what ultimately happened- So Mark Harris, the Republican, <coughs> beat out the incumbent Republican. And Robert I think Mark Pittinger. is- Robert Pittinger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so he ran, it's a, it's a conservative district. And so he ran so far to the right of the sitting county. When you're a sitting politician, you have to address problems as you find them. You don't get to just say, you know what I would do if I was in charge? I would do and then list everything that you know the most radical part of your base wants you to do. You have to actually try to govern and work with the opposition or the other side. Um, so he got beat in a primary, and now you're in a position in a deep red district where, as you heard in the ad, he sounds more like a moderate Republican, and the Republican sounds like, you know, God knows what. Um, and, and it's it, it, it's really, really, <laughs> this is one of the frustrating parts of, of politics, aside from the policy, is that no one really cares about primaries. People, I'm going to vote for the Democrat in the election. I'm going to vote for the Republican in the election. Well, now, you know, if you're me, you're sitting there going, well, how did we get here? And so I, I would love to see people get more involved in the primaries so that you had two reasonable, good candidates to choose from rather than, you know, voting against your party in whatever district you're in or voting for someone who you don't like in any way, shape, or form, but you need to vote for it in order to keep sort of the balance of Congress in your favor. And, and I, I, I think primaries are just really, really underappreciated and yeah. how they impact these types of issues. Yeah, what's interesting is that these issues are at least coming up, right? We're seeing, again, this is kind of new that people are coming up with ads, tackling climate and clean energy in such direct ways, while the national media is distracted by migrant caravans and pipe bombs, which, I mean, there are some, the latter is a legitimate <laughs> news item. Um, but if you obviously peel back a little further, you see climate and energy are indeed playing. And there are other races. There's a, a Democrat uh, in New Mexico running for governor. She scales a wind turbine in her ad. Interestingly, there's a Democrat, Richard Ojeda, in West Virginia who's campaigning on pro-coal. Uh, mind you, he says they need to diversify the economy. Then there's the instance of Republican Ted Cruz uh, accusing Beto O'Rourke of supporting 
hiking taxes on gas. So you are, again, seeing energy play in, in different ways. But the money point you made, Brandon, is I think where we want to go next and see how even if it's not overt, climate energy influences and environmental influences are factoring into this election. Yeah, the green wave isn't just about policies. That's green isn't money. <laughs> the green, green Dollars. wave. Well, and that's, that's what it is, right? Like we, we talk about how many candidates are talking about environmental policy. Honestly, very few, right? At least few of them are spending their ad dollars talking about that. But the money means so much. Like the, uh, anyone who's been around a congressional campaign realizes you can almost determine early on whether you're going to win or lose by your fundraising advantage. And then you can sort of craft your message to meet whatever the polling dictates that you need it to meet. Interestingly here is the Environmental Voter Project put out you know, a report that said there are 20 million registered voters who list environment or climate as one of their top voting priorities, and they don't turn out. So when you're talking about the presidential election in 2016 at 123 million total voters, and that's a presidential, which is a much higher turnout year, they're saying there are 20 million environmental voters that don't turn out. So where the green issues, I think, come in is when you have groups like the League of Conservation Voters spending $60 million, they're not going to take someone who doesn't care about these issues and convert them to someone who does care about these issues. What they might be able to do is get a share of those 20 million people who already agree with them to the polls when they otherwise would have stayed home. And as we saw during the 2016 elections, Three or four of these states came down to thousands of votes, you know, not millions of votes, not hundreds of thousands of votes. So I think the, the, the green money will have a far larger impact than the green policy discussion on the campaign trail. And there's some even indirect ways uh, that we're seeing that with Tom Steyer. You know, he traditionally, um, you know, invested in climate change as an issue. He's spending a lot of money on this cycle on young people and trying to turn them out. So he's hired organizers at like 125 different campuses around the country. I don't know if you guys, you know, have seen them here at Yale, um, you know, but they're working to turn out young vote because traditionally, you know, even though young people care about climate change more than other groups, uh, far much higher, young people traditionally haven't voted. In the last midterm elections four years ago, you know, young voters turned out at a 15% rate. Um, so this election, you know, now we're seeing potentially greater interest. The polls are showing that 40% of young people are now definitely want to vote. So we will see on election day, you know, in my view, this, this issue, climate change, is the defining issue of your generation. This is your World War II moment or your Great Depression moment. And so, you know, unlike you know, that generation, nobody is asking you to go charge a hill under like a hail of bullets. You know, we're just asking you to turn out, vote, get some good people into office and build some solar plants and wind turbines. That's a far easier job, yeah. but this is on you. Just taking a step back, a few ads don't equal a green wave. It's interesting because people do say that they care about global warming and climate change. Yale's own research talks about 70% of Americans believe it's happening. You know, a majority even want some action on it. Something like a majority in all 435 congressional districts support requiring fossil fuel companies to pay a carbon tax. That's an amazing amount of support. And yet, we don't see people voting on it. All studies after studies show that people just aren't actually making that check mark or putting that up the top of their priority list day of. Then you're also seeing these conservation groups, like you're saying, Brandon, uh, linking global warming to other issues, which I think is interesting. They're not leading with climate change. Even Tom Steyer in his last few ads either doesn't mention climate change or is listed in a long list of other things, and he's a huge climate action advocate. Um, then, again, you mentioned the League of Conservation Voters, $60 million, more than they've ever spent before. And they're not just doing it to say, oh, vote on climate. They're doing it to say, 
climate change affects your health. Climate change is tied to jobs. It even could affect migration and immigration policies in future, which is super interesting. So they're almost intentionally burying the lead on climate, which I think their finding gets more traction. Um, well, Julia, let me jump in there, because yeah. I think one of the reasons they do that is climate, I would imagine that, that most people here have experienced the same. Climate policy is viewed as a partisan issue. If you're a Democrat, one of the things you support is climate mitigation policy, and if you're a Republican, you don't. And I think a lot of the reason for that is that a lot of these candidates, and being around campaigns a lot, what you learn is that people run for Congress typically for a reason. Maybe you want lower taxes. Maybe you had some personal situation, healthcare related, and that's what you care about. But very few people decide to run for Congress and know a lot about everything. Environmental and energy issues is rarely the reason that someone gets into a congressional race. So they learn on the job. And if all this money is going to Democrats to conquer Republicans, and then someone like the Koch brothers steps up, and helps you out and, and helps you balance out that money, the first thing you learn about energy and environment is everyone on the climate side wants you to lose and they're funding your opponents. And all the people who have approached you and educated you on the issues and made their point of view available to you and then also funded your campaign uh, are on the other side of the issue. So I would love to see, and of course selfishly so, but also I would love to see some of these environmental groups recruit Republican candidates that they want to help fund so that it's not it's a climate issue, it's an environment issue, but it's not a, we support only Democrats. Because then you're having a political discussion and no one's gonna show up and say, I'm a diehard Republican, but I'm so interested in the climate that I'm gonna vote for this guy that I disagree with about everything else, or this woman that I disagree with about everything else. And I would love to see that climate money spread around a little bit, and I'd love to see the issue become an issue that we can debate, but not an issue that we have to debate with a party label attached but to it. But it did actually happen. I think the Environmental Defense Fund came out supporting Carlos Corbello, at least with some social media posts, and they were they were highly criticized for it. The money's not there, though, and I'll give you a good example. And we talked about this in our show in San Diego. Um, for the first time ever in 2017, clean energy money favored Republicans two to one over Democrats. Now, clean energy, three years ago or during the Obama years, was like a curse word around Republicans. They thought clean energy, they tied it to Obama, they tied it to climate, they was stigmatized, they didn't like it, it was a waste of money, it was taxpayer you know, abuse, all that sort of stuff. Now, all Republicans will talk to you about clean energy. They're not quite ready to talk to you about climate, but you know, we see ads, Republicans talk about solar panels, uh, wind um, you know, jobs in their districts. Texas is, of course, the biggest producer of clean energy in the country, and so people want to talk about it. I don't think it's fully coincidental that Republicans have started talking about this a great deal, and also, for the first time ever, the clean energy industry has funded them more than they funded Democrats. And I would like to think that if we saw some of that disparity in climate funding, you might also, incidentally, start to see that conversation change a little bit. What say you? Well, you, you know, Elon Musk gave like $35,000 to House Republicans, and like people flipped out on him. So. <laughs> I think, um, yeah. you know, this is a touchy issue right now. We'll see. Like, as you said, Brandon, it's like, it's, a, it's hard to make climate, even for you, someone who's made this, you know, the defining shift of your career, and as you said, it's of the generation. It's hard in this particular moment, this month, this next week, to make that your top issue when there's control of the House at stake. I think that's a fair point. But as long as we treat it as a partisan issue, um, and we favor election outcomes from a party perspective over it, we can't then be disappointed when the people we elect don't address it. It just, it can't work that way. Well, it'll be fun after the dust settles from the elections, can we get together and figure out 
some ways forward. Maybe start with some small steps. You know, well, we can get together so you can buy me a really nice dinner wow. after, after <laughs> gets killed that's, by that's, we'll that's see. The, we'll that's see. the bet in Texas. Got to buy a nice dinner for the loser. Um, I think there there is a shift in tone. Another just quick example of a Republican is Representative Mimi Walters, a Republican in California. Uh, she actually voted in favor of bills to block Obama-era environmental regulations and co-sponsored the Stopping EPA Overreach Act. Uh, but recently signed a letter to California Governor Jerry Brown that said climate change was a significant factor in the forest fires. She also joined the Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, although she's been called out for greenwashing because of the, the previous things I mentioned. But it is interesting how somehow certain Republicans are getting pressured slowly, slowly to take a step toward action on this issue. Maybe it's, it's just for appearances at first, but I think that's at least something. And then it's up to people in her district and others to hold her accountable and her and other representatives to say, okay, you indicated you want to act on this. You joined the Climate Solutions Caucus. Show us the, show us the action. But isn't that indicative of the problem? So she's vice chair of the NRCC, which is you know the body that keeps Republicans in Congress. She's well-known, well-respected, and well-liked in Congress as a Republican. And if she comes out and says, climate is an issue, I'm turning my focus to this and I want to be helpful, there's two ways to approach that. One is to embrace that and try to get her to help you on some of these priorities. And the other is to say you're a fraud and you're greenwashing. Like, how is that helpful? How does that move the needle in the right direction? Maybe greenwashing is the wrong term, but I think there's a an issue there with her voting record and then what she has said she wants to do in joining a caucus. People are trying to make the record align. I think that's right. I think, I think Democrats would be more sympathetic once we see action from Republicans, you know, how many times do we see on other issues the sad tweets from, you know, your former boss, Paul Ryan, and like Jeff Flake, oh, I'm so disappointed, but then they always come home and vote, you know, with the president. Yeah, unless they're about to retire, and then it, well, suddenly they still things slightly change. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think the, you mentioned the Environmental Voter Project. At, uh, Shane is holding his words back. I can see it in his face. Um, <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the Environmental Voter Project at the beginning, just to like give another shout out to them. They're doing some interesting work, again, using big data to find um, basically where people who have expressed interest in energy and environmental and climate issues live, and just getting them out to vote. Like you said, there's some 20 million people that just care about this, have expressed it, and yet don't vote. Don't vote on it or just don't vote at all. So just do, using some light peer pressure, they just try to get them off their butts. And, and on a maybe positive note for people who care about this, like that's pretty encouraging. You don't have to change their minds, which is almost impossible to do. You just have to get them to go to the polls. So these elections are not only about people. They are about specific policies. And that's playing out through ballot initiatives in several key states. So we're going to turn now to... Washington, where there is initiative 1631, the carbon emissions free measure. And this November, for the second time, voters will have the chance to either decide to put a carbon price in place in Washington state. The first initiative failed in 2016. It was a big blow to the climate movement there. Uh, and if this second initiative fails, it will actually be really damaging, I think, to the whole philosophy that states can take action in the absence of federal action. So that'll be really interesting to watch. The biggest difference that they made in 2016 to now is that the first version was revenue neutral. So the, taxation, the taxed money would go back to people in the form of tax breaks or something like that. This time, they're actually taking that money and would dedicate it to very specific programs, which is actually maybe the more Democrat-aligned thing to do. The first time, they tried to maybe appease some Republicans, say, it's revenue neutral, you'll like this did not get passed. This time they're going right for it, picking the programs they want to put the carbon tax money toward. So 
I guess, Shane, what, is, what are your notes on this? What do you think that means for them to get this through? I don't think it means nearly as much, for example, as you think it means. And I, and I only mean that insofar as that if it passes, I don't think it shows us the path forward. And if it fails, I don't think we should say, well, this conversation's over. You know, it's hopeless. I think if it fails, there's a number of reasons that could be the case. Um, you mentioned the revenue neutrality of it. There might be some people who would say, I'm not fully against a carbon tax. I just don't want to fund the specific programs that are outlined in this bill. To so be clear, I, they're clean air, clean water, worker support, healthy communities, things like that. I mean, I feel like like you said, all the good stuff. So now it makes me look like a jerk by saying some people might not want that. But um, you did that all of yourself. You're party, a lot of <laughs> but, um, but I do think that, so if it doesn't pass, I don't think the sky is falling. I heard a lot of people say, oh, if this doesn't pass, it's over. And I just don't believe that. Um, if it does pass, on the other hand, it's interesting because Washington State, while it's known as a liberal state, is actually pretty representative of the country in that there are rural areas, there are urban areas, there are suburban areas. So if it does pass and they can do some exit polling on why people supported it, uh, why people who maybe didn't support it in 2016 supported it this time and find some of that nuance. I still don't think it's a, it's a, it's a panacea, but it certainly could be very instructive in, in future efforts in other states or at the federal level. I, do, I agree with you that Washington is an interesting experiment because of the demographics, and there's a lot of money being spent on this. So, you know, I am supporting a Green New Deal, and this is, this is on the ballot in Washington. So this is a great sort of test as to how are the voters going to respond to this. I think this is the direction that we need to go. We need a price on carbon. And with that price on carbon, we can do some really great things like lift people out of poverty. I know that's you know, some of the stuff you guys are talking about here at Yale um, you know, at the School of Forestry. And we, you know, I'm really excited to see how the voters react to this. If they do pass it, it could be other states may want to replicate it. Maybe in, in Washington, DC, they start paying attention to this as a model and say, how, how can we bring this to DC? If it can't pass in Washington state, then I think it you know, could be a setback. And on the topic of precedent setting, I think that same kind of dynamics at play in Arizona and Nevada. Different ballot initiative, in these two states, you have both of them considering a 50% renewable portfolio standard. So voters will decide whether or not they want to hike up uh, their RPS requirements, effectively, I think, doubling in both of those states. Um, the interesting thing in Arizona is the utility is pushing for an 80% clean energy standard. So the difference there is that that would include nuclear power. So it's an interesting battle there over just renewables or renewables and nuclear together. The environmental community, as you may know, is highly divided on that. But there's also some outside money coming in here. Tom Steyer's group has been, has been advocating for this. And so if it works, the environmental community may well try this in several other states. So that'll be interesting to see. I mean, Brandon, do you have thoughts on, on how that strategy is working? I think this is another great experiment on direct democracy. If the politicians won't move on this issue, uh, we can take it directly to the voters. And there's enormous money being spent against this. And so if voters step up and pass these initiatives in Arizona, in Nevada, there's something in Colorado you know, on fracking and such. If voters do the right thing here, I think people pay attention and say, okay, if, if Washington, D.C. is not moving fast enough, or these legislatures in the state are controlled by Republicans and they, won't, they don't want to do anything, let's just go to the people. And I could see a scenario where a bunch of you know, wealthy uh, Democratic donors get together and put money in and just put this on the ballot. And if it comes close and doesn't pass, 
I still think it may incentivize states to act and utilities to get behind compromised solutions because they don't want to keep spending this money every single cycle. This happened in Michigan with Tom Steyer. They were going to put something on the ballot. They went to the utilities and the legislators and they said, we can go this route or we can make a deal with you. And the legislators and utility chose to make a deal. So I think that's why, you know, the climate is on the ballot in many of these initiatives. Interesting, though, that people would maybe vote for a 50% renewable portfolio standard, but wouldn't vote for the clean energy candidate. Like, those are maybe, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I'm just, it's curious how that kind of divide works, though. Well, Arizona is one of the few states where the impact of solar energy on the economy is very clear. It's something that's tangible. You can see it in a day-to-day um, life. And so I actually think these issues will come down to money, and I mean that only in that it's all a messaging battle at this point. If you look at the polling on these things, if you ask almost any American, Republican or Democrat, who's being polled, um, do you agree with you know, the clean power plan, which will clean air for your children to breathe? Like Anyone's going to say yes. You'd almost have to be a terrible human being not to say yes. Um, when the question's phrased by groups who oppose such a thing, what they'll say is, are you willing to pay $100 more per month on your electricity bill for Obama's clean power plan? And people go, no. So it's all about how the question is phrased, and I think that'll come down to who gets their message across in front of Nevada, or I'm sorry, in front of Arizona voters. If the if the common sort of refrain that you're hearing every time you turn on the television, every time you turn on the radio, is your bills are going to go up so that some California billionaire can impose his policy preferences on Arizona, you're going to lose. If what they're hearing is there's you know 80,000 solar jobs in Arizona, your electricity bills are going down, and your air is going to be cleaner. You're going to win, and I think you know we won't know that till the very end when we see sort of this. But usually after the election, when you see the revenue numbers, again, I hate to be like a broken record on this, but they pretty often align with the outcome. Money and money the invested in outcome. Yeah, but interestingly, you know, in Nevada, where again they're also considering a 50% RPS, they're also considering electricity market deregulation, which is a curious thing. Like they would fully open it up, and that's not in any outside money. That's the casinos that want to be able to procure their own renewables at a cheaper price than NV Energy was offering them, the state monopoly utility, which. To your point, Brandon, I think regardless of what happens, NV Energy, the utility, has now really upped its game on renewables because it was suddenly facing this competition. So the net result is more renewables. <laughs> well, and you have, this is interesting because this, the political roles are reversed here. You have Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, who's traditionally aligned with liberal causes, fighting against this measure because they don't want casinos to be able to turn to clean energy solutions. They want them to be more reliant on Berkshire. And then you have Sheldon Adelson, who is, I think, this cycle, the biggest Republican donor on planet Earth. And he's fighting for more clean energy because he can power his casinos less expensively by doing that. So it is one of those rare instances where the political sort of positions that typically align with parties and the billionaires involved are cross purposes, which is Kind of fun. It makes it interesting. Yeah. yeah, this is about who owns the solar. Who owns the solar, exactly. I remember that epic like Bloomberg cover of like Elon Musk fighting with Warren Buffett. That was over net metering and rooftop solar at the time, but they're like shirtless and fighting, and it's a little bit graphic, frankly, but entertaining nonetheless. Thanks for the visual, um, though. But uh, the thing to note on the deregulation front, um, NRDC, an environmental group, did actually come out against deregulation. I know a lot of people in the clean tech world say that will foster lower, like cheaper price renewables. NRDC said this could actually leave the poorest in a bit of a bind because you don't have the one utility with a mandate to serve everyone and sort of shift costs around. It could allow the utilities, sorry, that could allow the casinos to leave. And then who takes care of the lower income people on the grid? And so that's a question that 
if this passes, Nevada will have to do a lot of background work and policy work to figure out how this works for everybody. Let's quickly shift to the California gas tax, our home state where we currently live, where Shane's party, the Republicans, have made the gas tax a major focus of their campaign this year. It's actually maybe the top one of get out, get out the vote. And so California increased the gas tax to pay for roads and infrastructure. And it's been in place. And I guess, Shane, you can speak to more about how and why this tool is being used as a campaign um, campaign measure. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, because when you talk to people, you almost never hear anything about the gas tax um, internally, right? I think what it is, is it's very, very difficult to motivate Republican voters in California. There aren't very many of them. And when you want to get them out, um, it's hard to do it because it, you just feel defeated. You know you're going to lose. Um, it, 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 you know, it's tough. And so the gas tax is one of those rare instances where you can motivate voters by saying, if you show up to vote to overturn this gas tax, immediately that makes your day-to-day -day financial situation better. It costs you less money to fill up a tank. And it's not one of those things where you say, well, over time, the country's gonna save a billion dollars, so your family's gonna save $6,000 over the next 12 years. This is when you go fill up on January 1st, it will actually cost you, you know, 14 and a half cents less per gallon or something like that. Why that's helpful is that you might not show up to vote for Republican X in you know, California's 48th district, in Orange County, but you very well might show up to repeal that tax. And then because you're already there, you'll vote Republican because you're a Republican. And so I think Republicans have spent an extraordinary amount of money on this because it is a lot more exciting to tell people we can save you money tomorrow than reelect your Republican representative um, in a time where excitement. Um, oh, yeah, California. like when you guys put the anti-gay stuff on the ballot in 2004 with George W. Bush. I'm like honestly not even familiar with that. I know, I know you want to embarrass me right now, but I, I'm not, I don't even have any, any You're running any that play again with that, uh, the gas tax? Go, oh, Shane. <laughs> I love that I'm now tired of the air. Well, Brandon, you, you have a Chevy Bolt, so you just avoid the gas station altogether. I don't care. I drive past that $4 a gallon gas station and just keep cruising in my uh, EV. And but it's the rest of us non-elites, you know, we have to deal with the yeah. My car is less expensive. It's great. <laughs> I always say this, but I don't even have a car. <laughs> I don't go out much. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I'm Julia's like Uber driver. Whenever she I, that's true. Ride, actually, I, like, I just like I actually got up to your car and got in the back seat because I was like, oh, but, oh shoot, that's I know you. <laughs> I got her coffee um, for this, you know, show. I drive her around. She's thank got a good you. deal going on. Thank you. Okay, so we're gonna switch to our constituent services segment, which is where we take a question from our listening audience. And this one we got from Twitter ahead of the show from Sam Citadino. I don't know if he's in here by chance, if he's a Yale student, no? Okay, well he tweeted us, and it's a question for Shane predominantly. If Republicans hold on to Congress and a majority of Republicans are open to act on climate change, question mark, but are afraid of being ousted by their constituency, how do they flip the script and get voters to be more, quote, climate friendly so they can focus on policy, not politics? Yeah, so when we saw this question, I loved it because he actually hit every single cue in the nuance. I mean, there is a big difference between being okay with something and being for it or running on it or having it be you know, one of your primary issues. So I think he's right. What we need to do is get a critical mass of people okay with it. And interestingly, one of the things that I have focused on sort of personally in my outreach efforts is, I think one of the easiest ways to normalize this issue among Republicans is going to be to work with conservative um, media, and I say media not only as the press, but also you know Heritage Foundation, um, other think tanks that are trusted on the right. If people on the right start reading trusted sources, voices that they think align more with their lifestyle, voices that they think typically tend to agree with them, start to talk about clean energy policy and climate policy as a, an economic opportunity, 
I really think that's more effective than a politician going to Washington with one point of view and then coming back and saying, I've been to Washington, I learned, and now you should all support climate action. I think it has to start, um, the grassroots is important, and that's why I said I'd like to see environmental groups get more involved with all candidates, Republican and Democrats, but the media, I think, is a, is a, is a place where Republicans could focus on traditionally right-leaning outlets and really start to hone that economic message so that day after day after day, rather than hearing about how bad you know, Obama's regulations were and how bad climate policy is for your bottom line, um, Republican voters across the country would be more conditioned to think about you know, what's going on in the technology space, some of the cool opportunities, and you know, start to understand more seriously what some of the consequences of climate change could be, whether it's you know, some of the experiences they're having in the South with hurricanes or the West with wildfires. Um, once you start to think that the people I know and trust are telling me this is important, it's a lot easier for politicians to come home and message that. But um, traditionally, the media divide has been as strong as the political divide. On one side, this is really great, and on the other side, it's not so great. As someone in the media, it's hard for you to take a stand and say, oh, we are going to make this a strategic focus so we can convince more Republicans of this or that or the other. I happen to work for a clean tech publication. We're a B2B, so that's how we come at the issue. But I mean, great as that may sound, um, well, it's, but it's like, this shouldn't about, really be the media's job. Yeah, the media shouldn't be a PR arm of the Republican Party, of course. <laughs> it is. Um, but I think <laughs> the Fox News but is. I think, <laughs> so there's um, a, a reporter from the Washington Examiner, which is traditionally a trusted source for Republican um, you know, Capitol Hill staff, members of Congress, a guy named Josh Siegel, who's fantastic. And he reached out to me randomly and said, hey, I want to start researching more and writing more on how climate policy and environmental policy is being received amongst Republican politicians. I'd love to be able to bounce some ideas off you when I get the chance. He's not a PR actor for the, the right, but he is starting to approach Republicans with some of these questions and get their perspective. Why did you vote this way? Why did you vote that way? What kind of things would you, you know, need to hear or know to be more supportive of these things? So it's, it's not, you're right, it's not about turning the media into a PR spin machine. It's about asking those questions and starting to have a dialogue with Republican politicians and conservative voters about these issues more generally, and mainstreaming that's, it. That's why I love doing this show is because I wouldn't have known that without talking to Shane. And that gives me some reason, there's like a glimmer of hope out there because what I'm hoping for on this issue is for Republicans to take some leadership and show some courage. And sometimes I think you need to put your country or the planet over party and I saw President Obama do that from time to time. I mean, I had to work with unions on his behalf on the campaign. And like the teachers unions did not like him because he had different ideas about um, you know, how to do education policy than the teachers unions. And he stood up to them. And they're a powerful group within the Democratic Party. When he thought about doing Medicare and Medicaid reform, <laughs> that's a tough position to take sometimes within the Democratic Party. So um, Shane gives me some reason for hope when he you know talks about these you know examples like with the Washington Examiner and I love hearing from him about sort of the tactics that you know we may need to you know use to get there because I'm certainly the farthest thing from an expert on Republican tactics but the outcome I think will need to be that we just need some courage and some leadership. Yeah, an open mind, I think, to even come to the table to begin with. I think, you know, we've been criticized as a show for even having this conversation, right? Um, but I think we believe that it's the first step to getting anything done. Yeah, and you have to remember, elected officials' jobs is not to tell their constituents what to think. It's to represent what their constituents already think. And so 
Mm. You know, a lot of people. It's a republic, right? You're, you're you're supposed to do what's best for you. Well, it's a democratic republic, so yeah. you elect your representatives and they then get they input, represent and then you. They're supposed to the make, word. do the right thing. But I think my point is that I think if you talk to a lot of Republicans in Washington, elected officials, they would be more open to these discussions than maybe a lot of their voters. And so I, I think the conversation can't just be had in an office space in Washington. It has to be had, you know, more commonly in local media and local, you know, town halls or whatever that that might be to to, name, to mainstream it again. Brandon, I have to ask you one quick question because this came up so early on, and we actually had an EPA representative on our podcast right at the moment that Scott Pruitt resigned and left the EPA. And at that time, Democrats were already thinking, oh, this is going to gin up so much support, and people are going to vote on uh, against the Pruitt agenda, the deregulatory environmental agenda. They're going to vote on just the anti-corruption agenda, because Pruitt obviously was, was let go and left for many scandals. Do you think that's actually coming up in this at all? It feels like forever ago that his name was mentioned. Is that playing at all? I don't think so. Um, you know, we're going to get in this prediction game at the end of this episode, which scares me. I was definitely right that Pruitt was going to be fired. Um, but it does not appear, I thought maybe there was a chance that because there was such widespread corruption within the Trump administration that all those examples would sort of hang together and corruption should be like a bipartisan thing. You know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you should not be standing for your public officials enriching themselves or abusing their office. Um, but that doesn't appear to stick uh, with the, certainly with the with the Trump base. They, they do not seem to care at all that that, that that happened or this continues to happen. All right. No, I'm just say personnel issues typically have not played well on the campaign trail in any election that I can remember. Normally we end our show with a segment called Say Something Nice, where each member of the opposing party has to say something nice or redeeming about the other political party. Because this is our election special show, we're gonna use this time to quickly make some more predictions no dinner on the table. You could have maybe a martini or something if you want to up the ante. I don't know. Your call. Um, but who's, who's going to lay down what they expect to happen in a week's time? I'll go first because I think Brandon's going to have you know, an entirely different point of view. Um, I am highly, highly confident that after next Tuesday there will be 53 Republican senators. Um, there's 51 now, 47 Democrats, two independents that caucus with the Democrats. If we would have had this conversation two months ago, I think a lot of people believe that it was 50-50 proposition as to how power would turn. I think um, North Dakota definitely goes Republican. I think Montana was never going to go Republican, and now it might. Missouri probably wasn't going to go, now it might. Texas looked a little sketchy. I think Republicans will hold that. Democrat in Arizona, or um, uh, Nevada and Arizona look sure to flip. I don't think either of those will. West Virginia is a toss-up. So I think we'll have 53 Republican uh, senators compared to 51 now. The House. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not so confident about uh, from my side, but I do think Republicans will lose between 20 and 35 seats. Obviously, 23 seats would make it a Democrat House. Um, I think the idea that there's going to be like 64 seats like there were in Obama's first midterm, I think, is almost, you know, insanity. Now, I might end up looking like a fool in, in seven days, but um, we'd never seen that before Obama. I don't think we'll ever see it again. Um, but even 20 to 35 uh, would be a significant pickup for the Democrats if it goes. I mean, 22 would feel like they fell short, but anything over 23, I think no one's going to cry over spilled milk. If the Speaker's gavel moves, they'll be happy. I'm 75% I'm sure Democrats will take the House, but I would have been 99% sure just a couple weeks ago. I'm terrified to make a prediction <laughs> because after 2016, I'm like still shell-shocked. Um, I think Shane has laid out a very reasonable you know, scenario, and I think... 
some of the Republican tacticians, it seems like over the last couple of weeks they've been playing, you know, really to their base to either preserve or expand the Senate and then reduce the losses uh, in the House. And that could be a very smart 2018 strategy, you know, to sort of play the best hand that they're dealt, especially because the Senate, you know, is such an unfavorable map, you know, for Democrats. There's so many purely red states where you have a Democratic incumbent. Uh, but that may be a long-term harm, you know, with that strategy for 2020. But I'm going to go. Everyone that knows me knows I'm one of my big. I'm always too rosy, um, and so I'm going to be more optimistic here because um, I'm betting on the millennials. I'm really hoping um, that this surge in interest. You know, we saw it with Parkland. We saw young people marching. I'm really, really, millennials have so much power to change these dynamics. Because when they're modeling on these polls, they're modeling on previous turnout. And young people haven't turned out. So that's a fair way to model. But I think that there's something going on. There's an awakening. And I'm really hoping um, that I think we could wind up with some shockers in the Senate. I think, um, you know, I've been talking about uh, Beto on this show for so long. Um, and you see those events, you see those rallies in Texas, something's happening. Uh, and so the thing that scares me the most is that uh, this voter suppression stuff is just keeping me up at night. My uh, wife, her family lives in Texas, and my mother-in-law went out to vote in Houston. And, you know, early vote, long lines at the polls. They said the machines were malfunctioning and they turned everybody away. And so that stuff is happening. You see this stuff happening in Georgia. Uh, it's really, really scary. Um, but despite all that, I'm going to say the Democrats take the House with a comfortable majority, nothing like, you know, the wave we saw in 2010. But I'm saying, you know, 30 seats uh, is my guess. And I think we're going to split the Senate. Oh, wow. You think you'll pick up a seat in the Senate? I know it's crazy. And, you know, <laughs> I think you laid out a very, you know, practical path there, especially with all of the barriers of the map, you know, and voter suppression tactics. Um, but I'm hoping that this country is going to reject some of the stuff that we're seeing out of Donald Trump. I think there's some, you know, some of these candidates like Fitzpatrick and Curbelo are fine candidates. Um, and in ordinary times, you know, maybe Republicans that we could support. But we need, I'm hoping people will stand up, especially young people, and reject this uh, divisiveness and the stuff that we're seeing, you know, out of, out of the president. Well, I know we have to wrap it up. So really quickly, just on substance for election watchers, people who follow this stuff a little more closely. In 2016, um, and we've talked about this before, uh, Hillary didn't show up in the closing months in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, because those states were already won. She'd already won those. So she was focused on Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, turning those purple and eventually blue for the 2020 cycle uh, for her reelect. And I told Brandon when we first made this Beto uh, O'Rourke Ted Cruz bet, I hope to goodness that Beto O'Rourke comes close, because that means Democrats learn nothing. They, they're put $38 million last quarter into a Texas Senate race when we have no idea what's going to happen in Pennsylvania. We have no idea what's going to happen in Ohio. We have no idea what's going to happen in Orange County, California. We have no idea what's going to happen in South Florida. And so, uh, you know, we'll find out. But I think it was very unwise. Invest in your traditional 
um, comfort zones, going into Texas and spending $38 million on one quarter when you could have distributed that against much more competitive house races did not seem very I think that's an interesting point because the days, it's not like the Democratic Party, you know, the DNC is sitting there orchestrating that $38 million. Well, it's Act Blue. That's actually exactly what happened. Well, Act, that's how Act Blue works. I think you're seeing the, the fundraising game has changed. This is like small dollar donors who are excited all over the country around Beto's message and they're investing because they're inspired and the days of like raising money from an insider game and just your lobbyists, those days are over. Bernie Sanders ran a very credible challenge to an establishment candidate because he was able to raise that small dollar money. It's so easy now on your phone to like see a video and then just donate, right? And so Instagram, all these things that are allowing you know voters to like plug into all these different campaigns and give a small amount of money, it's changing the way politics is going to be. Um, is, is, is going to go. And so I think we're going to see that showing up in the polls too. Maybe a blue wave. We'll see. And a mountain green wave, I think, just to go how we started this whole, whole episode off. It may not be a tidal wave, but it's, um, you know, a splash at least. Here's one prediction I can count on. <laughs> if we it. do not take the house, you're, you, I don't know. <laughs> you're going to find me like jumping off. I'm not going to show Santa up for Monica an extra Pier. quarter. You're going to find me in the Pacific Ocean. Wait, your prediction was <laughs> if you don't take the house, you're what? I, I'm scared. I'm so scared. <laughs> that was your prediction. Beware. This, I know, I know the, uh, this friendship like we've invested in like, is going to yeah. come to an abrupt yeah. end. I feel. I'm going to need like monitoring for a couple of days. <laughs> we'll come find you. I'll drive you around in the leaf next time. Okay? The bolt. The bolt. The bolt. Sorry, the bolt. All right, well, that is our show, ending on, uh, I guess, kind of an optimistic pessimism. Who knows what the heck's going to happen? We certainly don't. I guess the point is get out and vote no matter who you vote for. Thank you so much to Yale for having us. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. Thank you again for having us, and check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe, and if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks again. Vote. Republican. Can I open a list of them?